Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 134 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. We writers are such tender beings. So says my guest for this episode, Dr. Ginger Moran. And she is right, of course. And we discuss this and many other issues in the conversation that I will be bringing you in this episode. But first, a little bit about my guest. Ginger is a writer, a coach, and learnt the craft of writing with some of the greats, including Anne Beattie, John Casey, Donald Bartlemay, and if you haven't heard of any of those guys, please go and look them up. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in English from the University of Virginia and a PhD in literature and creative writing from the University of Houston. She has published material in numerous journals and magazines and her novel, The Algebra of Snow, was nominated for a Pushcart Award and was published in 2012. She has won awards as a writer and an editor and has taught creative writing as a faculty member through residencies and as a visiting fellow. And if that all sounds a little bit academic to you, that's because Ginger is an academic. But don't worry, she shared plenty of practical advice and insight of the kind that you know I love. From the answer to the unashamed clickbait title of this episode, What is the One Thing That All Successful Books Have?, and we'll reveal that later, to her wise comments on how to approach the first draft of a project versus the later editing process. Lots of good stuff in this conversation to share with you. I have one quick request before I bring you that conversation. If you have bought the book that accompanies this podcast, The Creative Writer's Toolbelt Handbook, and it has been useful to you, please brighten my day and receive my gratitude, even though I can't give it to you in person, by leaving a short review for it on Amazon. I would be very grateful if you could do that. Thank you. So here is my conversation with Dr. Ginger Moran. I hope you find it entertaining and useful. So Ginger, it's great to have you on. Welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I wanted to start by just asking you to kind of go back in time a little bit and and tell us how you first came came to write. What was it you think that that kind of prompted you to, to start writing? Well, if I have to, uh, so looking back on it now that I've been a writer for quite a long time, I mm. can see that it started from probably birth. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was really a bookie kid. I loved going to the library. My mother loved reading to me and she read me really dark things. Like I got a whole ton of Hans Christian Andersen, which, um, made for a very yeah. dark kind of imagination, yeah. but incredibly rich and wonderful. I was a it was a very book wealthy home. Um, you know, I just I love to read from the time that I was little. So when I look back at it, I can say, Oh, you know what, I probably always was thinking like a writer. But I honestly, I am not one of those people who started writing at 12. And you know, had a five volume series by the time I was 13. And <laughs> I, I actually did none of that. I was actually in my 20s. I was an English major at college, so you would have thought that it would have dawned on me, but I actually had a really bad breakup, <laughs> and I was in therapy, and my therapist said, well, why don't you try writing? It's like, yeah. 
do, do what? So I have to say I started writing because of a nervous breakdown, I guess, or yeah. a bad pickup. So that's what got it started. It's like, oh, man, I really like this. And I think I just kind of rediscovered my my true nature. Mm. Okay. I just to, I mean, that's quite intriguing. So I want to just kind of divert into to, to exploring that, if I may, just, just for a moment. So did you find it helpful to you to do some of that kind of therapeutic writing, writing for yourself and to help yourself then? Um, so I did. I was writing a journal, you know, usual self-indulgent you know, stuff that I hope my children burn before they ever look at it. <laughs> but uh, what, and, and that was really helpful. I'm a great believer in writing in a journal and I, yes. I, I maintain my self-indulgence there to this day. Um, but what really took me out of myself was writing fiction. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that just, it just brought me the deepest possible satisfaction, even if I was writing about really dark and dreadful stuff. I just came out of it feeling satisfied. I think that's quite fascinating that that this process should be helpful to you. Do you, do you think that was because you were working something out in what you were writing within the content of it, or or was it that actually you're a writer and when you write that in and of itself is the thing which makes you flourish and, and, and kind of come alive? That is a really intriguing question. I wish I knew the answer to it. I could <laughs> probably make some money on it. But, um, you know, it's really just a good question. I honestly think that we're all deeply creative. Yeah. I think we're, we're, there's a spark of genius in everybody. It might not take the form of writing, but I think that there is just something so driven to to proliferate, to change, to imagine mm. alternatives, mm. Uh, to come up with other possibilities that it might not just be me that finds that deeply consoling uh, mm. to live in alternate realities. Uh, and I also think that it's helpful sometimes just to to come at things laterally, not to take them head on, uh, you know, really just come up with a completely different approach to things. Yeah. It takes a lot of pressure off. Um, so it could just be me, but... Um, I, I suspect think not somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, I think not too. I, I've met an awful lot of people who there's just a there's a kind of uh, arriving homeness to it mm. there is there is isn't there really and I, I, I feel like we could probably talk around this subject for the whole mm. hour almost because it is a fascinating <laughs> subject and it's, it it's interesting the particular mm -hmm. words that you've used to explain mm -hmm. what you've said there like like consoling mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that our writing could console us and mm -hmm. And as well, I think that the, the what you said at the end there about the sense of the, the kind of coming homeness mm -hmm. of writing, and mm. I think there's a there's a there's, there's something in that, and I can't quite phrase it into a question, but I'm just I'm just kind of savouring <laughs> the concept of because um, I think it, the, the writers amongst us will understand the consolation in coming into a world that we create that we can we can inhabit, and that as you say, we aren't. It isn't dealing with life and it isn't presenting life head on, but it's coming at it tangentially a little bit. And yes. and mm -hmm. there might be, you know, there'll be elements of the fantastic in it, perhaps, and all kinds of things going on. 
it maybe it's just a sign that somebody's a writer that they might understand those concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's possible. Although I do have to say, I just think that we all have that that sense of possibilities that this isn't all there is, okay. and that you know, if you start making a child's birthday cake and you realize all the different possible ways of doing it, mm. it's just so thrilling that there is so much possibility there's you know such proliferation uh it's so freeing and it's so easy to live in this world that seems very oppressive and limited and when you move over into that realm and it doesn't take much to get there no it's all of a sudden it's uh anything goes it it sounds like you're you you're kind of almost like a cheerleader for the imagination you're celebrating the imagination there (laughs) You know, that, that it's yeah. the kind of that our if we only dare to allow our imaginations yeah. to think and just yes. just broaden out into all of those possibilities, yes. we will discover wonderful things that we didn't know that we could discover. I do pretty much believe that it's a it's a little bit of a it has, there's a little element of spirituality to it to me too. Mm. That there's just a, um, you know that if you look around you, the world is so full of possibilities and there's just such limitlessness and it's almost our human routines and minds that makes it so limited. I'm, I'm going to have to ask you about this because it's just too tempting okay. really. But how, how... <laughs> yeah, we're really going some interesting places. Yeah, we've already, we've already, stuff. we're kind of off and away already, yeah. but that's fine. <laughs> um, I, I just wondered if you, if you could kind of elaborate slightly on, the connection between storytelling and the imagination and spirituality how do you how do you think those things connect how does that work at least for you how does that work well you know i think so i'm going to i'm i'm going to totally steal somebody else's words which is um alice walker talks about it in the color purple hmm. uh, when her character shug tells the main character that um she is not she's uh when the main character Seely says that she doesn't believe in God, you know, she just doesn't, you mm. know, it's just not possible. She lives in very abusive marriage and life has just been awful for her. Um, and she tells her, you know, that there are other possibilities. And Seely just says, Well, I don't see it. And she says, Well, you've got to peel the man off of your eyeball. <laughs> that you're focusing too close in she's and she just says you've got to look around and look at how crazy god went inventing things to entertain us like he even came up with the color purple um Ah. it's like there's just this incredible richness right there Mm. if not focusing in too closely and that that passage just blew me away <laughs> she said it better than i ever could Is well i think you've cute? captured you probably captured the, the 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 spirit of it no pun mm-hmm. intended the kind of essence of it there haven't you yeah yeah i really just go back to that it is just that um you know you can call it i i'm, I'm not wedded to what you want to call it you know mm. It's just that sense of possibility. Mm. It reminds me of a um, a writing exercise that uh, I, I, did, I was at a, a writing event some years ago and uh, the person who was running the session had us um, put down our 
books and pens and stuff and go outside. And we were in a fairly rural location. Um, and she encouraged us just to go and look, not just look at nature, but to actually pay close attention to Mm -hmm. certain things, not everything, but just some things and to actually really attend to what, what we could see and looking at the detail and the texture and all of this sort of stuff. And I think there's something in that, in the kind of potential and the, the, Mm all of the the kind of permutations of what what is possible out there yeah that was some crazy imagination that came up with that stuff yes it's it, <laughs> I, I mean we certainly like that exercise we did we we kind of felt quite invigorated by that because yes absolutely i think perhaps that day-to-day humdrum life routine thing that you alluded to yeah. stops us from attending to detail it mm-hmm. just makes us kind of mm-hmm. just focus very in, in a narrow way on the next thing and then the next thing and so on Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you earlier on you you kind of touched on the fact that some of the early cultural influences on you were quite dark, and you talked about Hans Christian Andersen, and and although they are fairy tales, actually they are quite dark as one fairy <laughs> yes, tales. Yes, they are. Dark. Yeah, yeah. Um, were there other things as well, or, or perhaps you could you want to talk about Hans Christian Andersen a little bit more? But what were the cultural influences that really did make an impression on you, and not not just necessarily writing, but TV, film, and other other things when you were younger? Uh, yeah, so I grew up in the 50s and 60s in America, so uh, in the South. And so, you know, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of political stuff, and my mm. family was actually very political. They were very active in civil rights. Um, so I saw a lot of that um, pretty young. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was in sit ins. Um, my family, I actually, we actually heard Martin Luther King, my brother shook hands with him. And um, so, you know, we saw a, there was a lot of violence. Um, there was a lot of scary stuff. When I went to first grade in Virginia, that why well, I was supposed to be going to first grade, the governor closed the schools down rather than integrate them. It's just hard to think about it. You know, I don't feel like I'm that old. I don't feel like I'm like hundreds of years old. I can't believe all that happened in my lifetime. Um, you know, but there was there was a lot of reality. My mm. father was very um, realistic and engaged with the world. And my mother was very airy-fairy. You know, we were often in Christian and Anderson land. So it's somewhere between that, her uh, <laughs> fantastic imagination and... Um, and you know my father's realism that I think my my sensibility was forged. Right. Um, you know we didn't we didn't watch a lot of TV in those days. We were mostly you know outside um, getting into trouble. Uh, we were you know we were free range children in those days. Like nobody was supervising us, so we were you know we were out stirring things up as as often as possible and risking our lives pretty much as. Is what that was, what that was like. So it was, it was a different time. It was, you know, not nearly as regulated. No, no. But it, it, it sounds like, it sounds like you had a lot of fun in the process, though. <laughs> well, yes, a lot of fun, a lot of, you know, making a lot of mistakes and, yeah. you know, all that. As I said, I grew up in the 60s. So, you know, I was in the whole hippie thing. And, right. you know, we did a lot of really um, stupid things <laughs> in, in those days. But, <laughs> You know, it was a great time. A lot of music. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was an exciting time, but it was it was definitely not um there was very little supervision. Mm. 
So you could you were you were free to make a whole lot of mistakes, which I took advantage of. A whole bunch of questions could lead from that, which I won't go into now. I don't think. But coming back to to the writing, so I think you said you you you're an English major, and then <laughs> you've obviously done a, a lot of studying and work around creative writing, and you've you've yes. you studied with and worked with some mm-hmm. great writers. So I wonder if I you did. could tell us tell us a little bit about who you did study with and what kind mm-hmm. of things did you learn from them? Maybe their personalities or maybe think, you know, words of wisdom they said. What what did you gain <laughs> from that experience? Yeah, you know, working with great raiders is really different from reading them. Um, <laughs> you know, so you actually get to know them, which um, is really great and um, sometimes not so great. Mm. Um, I, when I was uh, working on my master's degree at the University of Virginia, I worked with Ann Beattie, who's a uh, famous short story writer, New Yorker writer. And um, she's very, uh, she, much like her prose, she's very dry um, and, uh, and, and tough. She was a very hard teacher. I mm. had really just started writing seriously at that point. And she was, boy, was she tough on you. But I uh, went and talked to her about that one time. I said, you know, this is just not really helping. And she ended up being this incredibly good friend and champion and mentor to me for many years after that. So that really taught me to, like, you know, get in people's faces if you're not getting what you need from them. Mm. Like, you know, she ended up recommending that I look at the PhD program at the University of Houston. She was actually very good friends with Donald Barthelmey, who was, okay. you know, the great American experimentalist. Yes, uh, yeah. They seem like such super different people, but they were extremely good friends. They were both New Yorker writers. And uh, I was having dinner with Anne one night. I'd actually gone to work after I'd finished my master's degree and hated working. I just really cannot tolerate nine five. <laughs> just like really being put in prison. So I was complaining bitterly about the fact that I was working. And um Anne, who had just been at Houston giving a reading, <clears throat> said in her very dry way, think about Houston. It's not as bad as you imagine. Uh, <laughs> By which she meant the PhD program in literature creative writing that Donald actually had created. So he actually came from Houston. He always seemed like such a super uh, sophisticated New Yorker experimentalist writer. But he actually came from Houston. Okay. uh, And he had gone back there um, and really had fathered this program. And it was a dynamite program. It was really very... um, it was a whole literature PhD plus workshops. Then you did comprehensive exams in actually in academic subjects. Um, and your um, PhD, your dissertation was uh, um, creative, but you had to write a critical introduction to it, which was total hell. <laughs> <laughs> like I could write criticism about anything and I could write fiction uh, but trying to write criticism of my own fiction was wow. just the, I thought my head was going to explode. Um, but Donald was a total character. He uh, was really, um, he was a very, very good teacher. He was an incredibly good teacher. He was really gifted. Uh, 
And he was also incredibly hard. We would read pages out loud in our workshop. That was how you workshop stuff. Mm. And <laughs> this didn't happen to me, but I had definitely heard it happen to other people. Like he would, somebody would read a first page and like they would be getting ready to read the rest of the story. And Donald, who would walk around the classroom in his cowboy boots, he was very um, like physically uncomfortable. I think he was actually in a lot of pain. He had a bad back. Um, and also by the time of day when we were having workshops in the afternoon, he'd had several fish bowls of white wine. Right. Um, so <laughs> it was always an interesting, it's like, but he would, could not have been more on and it just like completely focused and really, really good. So whatever he said about your story was just incontrovertible. But his, every once in a while it would happen. Somebody would start reading a story. And I remember this one time when somebody had read like the first page of his story and was like, you know, enthusiastically going to read the rest of the story. And Don stops him and says, Richard, does this get better? <laughs> Pretty damning question, isn't it? Really? <laughs> oh my God, there's just really nothing you can say. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, he had incredibly high standards. Uh, he was uh, he was very, very good. And some really good books came out of the program while I was in it. In fact, um, the book Crazy Heart that became mm. a Academy Award winning movie was written by a really good friend of mine under Donald's tutelage. Um, and the main character in it, who is this kind of ruined country music singer, singer Bad Blake, who is played by, um, uh, what's his name? Bridges. Jeff uh, Bridges? Yeah, Jeff Bridges. Yeah. He's, uh, the, he's actually modeled on Donald. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, he wasn't a ruined country music singer, but he, you know, there are a lot of the same kind of um, excellence and you know, car wreck in one. Um, so unfortunately, Donald died while I was there too. He died very young, uh, 57 of mm. lung cancer. Um, you know, incredibly gifted teacher. It sounds He's brutal gonna... and wonderful both at the same time almost working with these it was, people. It was real. Yeah. <laughs> it was really real. <laughs> you really got to know them. It yeah. was uh, yeah. very but... intimate experience it sounds as if they were pretty fierce characters in terms of requiring excellence in the craft but that they, actually they is... absolutely they they did not mince words they were yeah. not going easy on this that was not happening but that wasn't a personal thing that was that was just them trying to get you guys to do the very best that you yeah, could yeah. i presume was it Yes, yes. You know, their goal was for us to be professional writers. I mean, they mm. wanted us to train as um, academics. They wanted us to have that kind of, at the PhD level, they wanted us to have the academic training so that we could pay the bills. Um, but they wanted us to be, you know, writing at the, you know, at the Academy Award winning movie level. Mm. That was what they expected of us, so... So now if we turn to what your reflections on writing and the, the, the thoughts you have on writing, and, and in fact, and in fact, maybe we should start with your writing. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your writing journey then in terms of the, you say you started in the when you were in your 20s. What, what did you write and how did that progress for you? So that's another really good question. I started, as I think many of us do, with short stories because yeah. I just didn't know the craft. 
Um, so I use short story writing as a means to learn the craft. Although I have to say, good short stories are so hard to write. Mm. It's like I would never really claim that as a thing that I do. I actually mm. do write a lot of essays. I find the essay form easier. Writing a good short story is really like writing a very long lyric poem. It's like you can't have a word out of place. But I did use that as, as a way to get started. Uh, that does remind me of another anecdote, if I can throw this in. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I was, um, yeah, E.L. Doctorow came to Houston to give a reading at the museum. We had incredible reading series at the museum there. And uh, I actually picked him up at the airport, which is a whole other story. <laughs> I'll tell you that another time. But um, on the way in to Houston from the airport, we had a discussion about uh, short stories versus novels. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Doctorow said he was teaching at the time. And he said that he could tell a short story writer from a novelist by their syntax. Okay. I was like, and he said, yeah, he said short story writers actually do have shorter, tighter sentences and novelists can ramble. My sentences are so rambly. There's just no way you could pack them into a short story. But I thought that was fascinating. It was kind of like, it's like a sensibility. It's almost like a rhythm that's in your head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the short story writer has a, a syntax, a rhythm that is so mm. much shorter and tighter um, that they, you know, it's, and I think, you know, short, really brilliant short story writers don't write their novels if they write novels aren't as strong um no no i'm, I'm sure i'm sure that's true i think it, it's a it's actually a different art form isn't it it's very it's different it's a completely than, different art yeah. form it is and i think there there's a voice that is just you almost can't change it that is your voice and once you've found it it is going to come out that way that doesn't mean you can't make it better you can't work on it yeah but i think you have a short story's voice or you can have a novelist's voice mm. uh, and it almost it isn't even the way that you talk it's the way the story is telling itself in mm. your head well so. i'm lapping this up because one of the things that i kind of decided was true in the course of doing this podcast over a number of years is yep. I think people can write in different styles. They can have a different tone in their in 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 their work, but they have people tend to have a voice, yes. and it, they can't really yep. change it because it's not. Nope. And it isn't that you can't write different genres or or whatever else. As you say, it isn't that you can't improve. Certainly, you can improve. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah. it somehow is woven into the fabric of who a person is that they have a, yep. a voice, and and that doesn't really change. I think, and I, I, I mean, I'm sure different completely. people would think different about this, but that's how that's where I'm at. I agree completely. I, I think you're totally right about that. And I, you know, I agree in every particular. You definitely, you know, there is a craft to writing. You have to work really hard at oh, boy, it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't come naturally. There's nobody that was born a writer. But I think that there is a seed of a voice that once you have gotten to that, it's really not going to change very much. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think actually... It's sometimes it's the hard work that yields mm -hmm. the voice. It's yes, almost I agree. like hammering the stuff out, forging yes. it mm -hmm. and refining it, mm -hmm. and the voice mm -hmm. comes. Yes, and going deeper and deeper and deeper. 
So, mm. but I knew I was going to have to write an extended piece for my dissertation. I was still writing short stories and I didn't want to be, I knew I wanted to be a novelist, but I didn't know how to make that leap. So I actually did an independent study with one of my professors there where she let me take um, some of Virginia Woolf's short stories, take one of Virginia Woolf's short stories that became a novel and like study deeply how she did that. Mm-hmm. So I read her all of her diaries, her essays that she was writing around the same time that she took the short story, Mrs. Dalloway on, on Bond Street, and it became Mrs. Dalloway, the novel. Mm. Um, I really studied what she did. And what it was, was that this, this kind of, you know, upper middle class wife goes shopping and looks at some gloves. And that's the short story. And then it turns into this immense novel that deals with World War One and PTSD and, you know, mental illness. Mm. And it's like the novel turns into this completely other thing. But it does still have that short story in it. She just went underneath the short story to mm. see what was behind this woman's life. And so I decided to take one of my short stories and do the same thing. But it's almost like spelunking. You have to just go so deep into the caves underneath, um, you know, the surface to get mm. to it. This kind of relates to what you were saying about the voice, because the my voice was down there, too. Yeah, I think it, it's there in all of us, as I think you mm-hmm. kind of alluded. But but it, 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 it's hard work, isn't it? To, it's hard work. To dig that out. <laughs> I kind of connected perhaps with, with this theme. I know that you've talked about psychological approaches to writing and, and, and mm-hmm. having the right mindset, I guess. Um, and, yep. and I've, I was, was reading some of the things that you've written about that. Certainly in, in, as well in the context of sometimes you can get something done quickly as a writer. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to put in the hard hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you can you elaborate on all of that for us and, and just expand yeah. a little bit on that? Sure, absolutely. I think that that's um it's something I've just realized recently. So I talk a lot about the um, process of writing and what I find that you know experienced writers have discovered this, but um, sometimes people beginning or in the middle of the process don't know this is that it actually is a process and there are different stages to it. I, you know, I really struggle with how much information there is out there about writing fast and all the different mm. ways to write fast. I'm sure this will come across sounding very prejudiced of me, but there's very rarely that they're talking about writing fast and writing well in the same sentence mm. because Writing fast. So the fast part or the easy part, in a sense, or the part where you don't want to be working too hard at it or the early parts of the process. I wouldn't say they're necessarily fast. They're much more dreamy. Like if you're just thinking about writing something, this is a stage of the process I call conceit, where it's just kind of coming into being. You think you might have an idea. You're mm. kind of playing with it. It won't leave you alone. You don't know exactly what form it's taking. You might not know when it takes place or exactly who the characters are. Maybe there's like, this has happened to me before. It's like, there's like a voice telling a story in my head. Like I one time had like this male truck driver telling a story in my head. Mm. <laughs> it's like, mm. wait a minute, where, where did you come from? I actually went ended up winning an award with that. And in <laughs> case you can't tell, I like could not be farther from a male truck driver. I'm like this, you know, middle aged 
uh, academic. It's like, where in the world did that come from? But um, in that dreamy state, sometimes it like happens when you're vacuuming or walking or something. You just start, this story starts telling itself in your head. Yeah. And there you really don't want to bear down. You don't want to make that hard. You just want to let that happen. Absolutely, yeah. Like you just yeah. have to completely take hands off uh, and just let that happen. And I think that continues all the way through the first draft of something. Like mm. you just have to let that be as much as possible. Just let it emerge. Don't have any standards. Don't have Donald Bartholomew in your head. (laughs) (laughs) Don't think, is this any good? Does this get better? Don't ask. You you will because that is, I think, the nature of creativity, too. It's so self-critical. But to to the extent possible, like, try to get that voice, the volume turned down as much as possible. Just let it come out without any demands. That can be fast, I think, maybe, but you don't want to bear down at that point. No, no. Then once you've gotten that draft out and you've seen what is there, uh, then you want to bear down. You know, at that point, you really want to start shaping it and being demanding and putting it into form and really Mm. learning the craft and applying the craft uh, in ways that it would have absolutely killed it if you had tried to do it at the beginning. And if you if you can see those as like two completely different parts of the process and really mm. separate them as much as possible, I think that's the way to get a book that has that germ of genius, you know, that you didn't kill because you didn't, you weren't asking it to be perfect at yes. birth, but you bring it up <laughs> into something that really can connect with people. So you, you, you're talking there, I guess, about the fundamentals of a process for the craft. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, do, you, do you see that process as having fundamentally those two stages, which then break out into other smaller stages? Or, how does, or, okay. or is, that, is it not quite like that? How does it work for you, the process of the actual of crafting a book? Yeah, it's, um, so it definitely is. There are lots of different other stages of it. You know, I think there's a you know, time when you're just at the very, you know, you think you might be a writer and then something starts telling the story in your head and mm. then you write it down and then you craft it. Then you have to take it into the world, which is a whole other series of <laughs> yeah. challenges. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, you know, make decisions about how you want to do that. And, and then, then you're going from the private to the public and it does get m- much more complicated at that mm. point. But I, I think that where the success at that stage of things actually starts way back at the beginning, which is, um, this is something Joanna Penn talks about a lot. I can't remember the phrase she uses for it, but I call it authority. It's like as much as possible from the very beginning of the project, decide what your own standards for it are. Mm. You know, don't go out wanting the world to approve of you. You know, decide for yourself what you are going to feel good about. Like, what are your goals? And mm. what what is it that is going to bring you satisfaction? I, I, I have absolutely done this. I've worked with so many people who think, you know, the only 
you know, way that will prove that they are actually good writers if they get, you know, mainstream publication, yes, you know, bestseller yeah. status. That that way, madness truly lies. Mm, sure, <laughs> because he does. You know, that is so. That can be so arbitrary. And the more interdirected you are from the beginning, the better. Like if you can just really think of what's in it for me. <laughs> you know, what do I want? <laughs> this you know and just and set your own standards for it you know do you want to learn how to write do you want to explore this world do you want to connect with particular people i think the more in charge of it you can be the better Mm. then as complicated as the process is which it is very complicated um you're you're going to achieve from it what you what you set out to and I don't know whether you would agree with this, actually. You, I mean, we might, there's several points we've agreed on, and we'll, we'll try this one, you know, we'll okay. kind of push the bay. <laughs> even, even, even if we set our own internal standards, there is, mm-hmm. I think, for, for writers, a, a sense in which we can, particularly if we're, new, if we're kind of newer to the craft, we write something and yeah. we think it might be pretty good, mm-hmm. you know, and then and we put it out there and we discover mm-hmm. that actually... The real standards, mm-hmm. by the real standards, is kind of not that good. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm, we've got mm-hmm. way, way, you know, we've got loads of things to learn and yeah. masses. It's, it's, we're nowhere near it. And right. we've got to overcome that kind of crushing <laughs> sense of, oh my yes. gosh, I'm a million miles away from it. And then we, <laughs> we produce something else, which is better. Yeah. But mm-hmm. then somebody comes along and actually points out that it's still not yeah. really there. <laughs> or, yes. You know, somebody, or I mean, as has happened to me recently, and I'm glad it did, actually. Mm-hmm. Somebody mm-hmm. comes along and says, okay, you've got 85,000 words of novel. Actually, the first 15,000 words, just cut them. Just, yes. They're, they're, they're just, yes. you, know, you don't need them. Just get, mm-hmm. And, you you know, yeah. you kind of, you have to kill your darlings, as, as the old yes, phrase goes. Yes, you do. You do. Yes. It's, yes. Just, mm-hmm. it's just like trauma for for. It's for really writers. hard. So <laughs> how, how, you know, what advice do you have for these Poor traumatized writers who are having to kind of, you know, they they go out there and they see that the bar is actually somewhere mm-hmm. up in the sky and they've got to cut yeah. and they've got to go back to the, you know, work again and all yeah. this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think one of the things that makes it the hardest for many of us is thinking it's easy. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just not easy. Yeah. Um, trust that, you know, life's so short, the craft's so long to learn. There's a craft to writing. So there's a part of the process that's very dreamy, very internal, uh, very individualized. And then there is a part of the process where you are applying a craft that has been practiced for thousands of years of storytelling. And it's yeah. like me, you know, um, you know, I, I joke with people about like, you know, if you're really good at healing your children's cuts and bruises and you lo- love watching hospital dramas does not mean you can go do neurosurgery tomorrow. <laughs> you might have to go to medical school. <laughs> you know, just consider that possibility because people think and, you know, we're romantics. We do think this, that we have a great idea and we love to read. Therefore, mm. we can write a good book. Nope. <laughs> that is not the way it works. No, it's not, not the way it works at all. 
you can certainly have a really wonderful time dreaming that dream into being on the page, which is a wonderful, fabulous experience. And I recommend that to everybody. But if you actually want to take that and put that in the world, it's going to have to go through that process of yeah. learning the craft and applying it, testing yeah. it out, being rejected, you know, having somebody say, does this get better? It's like, oh, my God, shoot me. Like, <laughs> and we're such tender beings. You know, we're so terribly tender. Yeah. But I think that's where we go wrong is to take that personally. You know, if you have a good reader, and not everybody is a good reader, but if you have a good reader who's telling you something and you, they have standing, you know, they actually do know what they're talking about. And they tell you get rid of those first 15,000 words. It was probably throat clearing. It was something you really needed to write to get to the real story. Like, you know, starting at, you know, the next word is where the story starts. And you couldn't have gotten there without those 15,000 words. But if somebody who is really a good reader tells you to get rid of them, just say, yay. (laughs) You know, somebody was respected me enough and saw that there was a good story in here somewhere. Yeah, to get rid of all uh, yeah, that. yeah, and and um, I'm yeah, you're right. There was, um, I mean, in in my particular case, I think I did have to write all those initial words to get to mm-hmm. what is actually the start of the story. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm not, I haven't, I haven't just pressed the delete key. I've still got all that but, other yeah, stuff. Absolutely. But right. yeah, it's um. It's kind of it, and you're right as well in what you say about we are all, you know, we are we're all tender people. We are very tender. Yeah, it's we are kind very of, tender, or we wouldn't be the dreamers. Yeah, that's that right. We wouldn't be able to create story. art, would we? Yeah, well, that's. But we have to learn how to put a a good skin around that tender being, and you know, the skin of experience and knowledge Mm. uh, and desire to actually do better uh, that understands it's not personal. You know, I, I often think about like the movie industry, which is even harder on writers where you're just being constantly, constantly pitching, getting rejected, pitching, getting rejected. It's like, but you know, the question is, is this going to, is this going to be worth the millions of dollars that go into the production? And we don't often think about books that way. But it is it is going to be an investment on our part or a publisher's part. And is this going to have the impact that it's going to have to have to make that worth it? And are we willing to go through that process? Because it's a it's a it's a demanding process. You know, really good literature. We know this because we're readers was hard to make. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't just you know spring out there <laughs> like, it kind of looks you know, it looks it's like we, we you know we can sit there and go oh you make it look so easy yes, yes, uh, yes. but actually it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't yes yes wasn't i'll go back easy. to my child raising metaphor it's like you know you can have a kid who has lots of you know great potential it's like they have a great personality but if you don't mold them and shape them to be a contributor in the world that all that it's just going to get lost. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to be both things. It has to be both the airy fairy dreamer mother and the realistic. <laughs> sounds very sexist because I was such a, you know, realistic, uh, demanding mother. So it does not, 
not attached to gender. It just happened to be the way my story. You're just was talking told. about your 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 experience growing up. I'm talking about my yeah. personal experience. Yes. I suppose from uh, you know what what is really useful for us all to take from that is that that those two things form a creative tension, don't they? A good tension yes. between yes. them. Yes, they do. So mm-hmm. and, and one mm-hmm. can't exist without the other. You can't create exactly great art right. without both of those things and I, I i'm sure that's true i'm i am completely sure that's true i've I, every part of my experience has taught me that and it is really not an easy um it's not an easy marriage no. uh, but it can be immensely satisfying i suppose i could say to my listeners take heart tender listeners <laughs> tender writers all of us uh, you know we are not alone and actually it it's hold the hold that intention don't don't lose the dream but work hard yeah. at the craft that's um, exactly right that's exactly and you know the other thing and you know i do work with raiders so you know work with somebody who knows how to do it you know learn the craft yeah learn the craft yeah it's yeah. so satisfying it's really worth doing you know that's like learning how to read was really worth it well learning how to rate is really worth it too i completely agree with you learn the craft Mm-hmm. what what are the good ways to learn the craft then what what are the steps that the writer should take to learn the craft you know there are so many ways it's completely insane so you can go <laughs> to graduate school you know you can do an mfa and really study you know with masters which was kind of the route that I took again. You know, there's plenty of stuff online. There are plenty of people who are teaching um, individually, Mm. you know, one-on-one like I do. You know, obviously read, um, but don't just read, like really look at the structure of a book. Like if it is something like something you're working on, actually just take it apart. This is really bad, but I've actually ripped you know, Dorothy Sayers up because <laughs> I didn't know how to plot. You know, I am so great at voice. I'm really just whiz bang at character and place. Oh man, I've got place down pat, but I could not plot to save my life. So <laughs> I had to put myself through this huge tutorial on plot. I read every book I could get my hands on. Uh, and then I just took books that I like the plot of and ripped them up. Mm. Doesn't sound good, but uh, I did. And that's, uh, you know, learn from the masters. They knew what they were doing, the reason why it worked. And not to ruin a good, you know, Netflix binge, but don't just watch it. Watch how they set it up. Watch how they started with an inciting scene. There was something that got your interest at the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. 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 Learn how to do that. Learn how to move that. Learn how to foreground that because that's where, you know, you, there's always a, a hook at the beginning of a book. Yeah. I, and I know, I mean, I know that there are some people who they don't like this sort of thing because they think mm-hmm. it's it's derivative or they think it's just kind of, it's all been done before. But these these techniques and these structures mm-hmm. have stood the test of time. That's exactly right. Yeah, there are different ways of doing things. And you can see over, you know, this is one of the virtues of having done a PhD in literature, is I actually have read every book that was ever, ever written. (laughs) (laughs) Over the history of literature, there have been experiments. And the format we're talking about is actually um, the oldest form. It's the, you know, Aristotelian 
um, dramatic structure. Yeah. Uh, and the reason that it's been around since Aristotle is because it is the way people's brains work. Yeah. The modern grit came up with a slightly different way of doing things, which can also work. But there are ways that work because of, you know, neuropsychology, basically. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's I, I, I completely agree with that. And, and yeah, I think we it doesn't mean that we just are, are too conservative in our, in our approach at all to this. But it, I think the thing that really gets me is, you know, you can look at you can look at stories from a uh, hundred or a thousand or several thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, folk tales from all kinds of cultures yeah. from across Absolutely. the world. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the ones that endure have that a similar thread. They have, and, and they still work now yes, in a way. They, they still they do, do work. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that's totally right. So we talk, we're talking a little bit about, you know, what, what really does work and perhaps what's successful. And, and I know that you've said that there is something in all successful novels and all mem- all successful memoirs. There's something they have. So I've got to ask you, what is it? What is it that all successful novels? And <laughs> so all yeah, success- I'm going to ha- I'm going to divulge my secret. Yeah. Which is, and this I actually learned from Donald Bartholomew. Every successful book, and this is novel, nonfiction, short story, every single one has a problem. It has a conflict, a mystery. And it comes at the very beginning. Yeah. This is why mysteries actually work is because you're you you're either you're very frequently going to get a dead body on the first page. Yeah, yeah. Have a problem, <laughs> and that is going to keep people reading. Yeah, I mean, it but, seems very it seems quite crude in a way, but it it kind of it just works, doesn't it? It's it kind of, totally works. Yeah, kind of. There's a body. There's a up. body. Yeah. How did it get there? Yeah. You know, who who did it? That you have to think of every book. I love mysteries. Like I'm like insanely um, devoted to reading mysteries constantly. But uh, if you think of every book as being a mystery and what happens to a lot of people is that because they're working with a discovery draft at the beginning is that they're they're discovering what the mystery is but if mm. they don't take that mystery and move it up to the front in their revision then they're going to ask people to go along on the same journey that they went along on which is to discover it and often mm. they'll bury it way too deep and you can't ask readers to go on that same journey with you they want a different journey so it's your job to find out what that problem is. What is the conflict? What is the thing that is going to drive them to go all the way mm. through that book? So, so how how do you think that works in the context of memoir? Because memoir was the other the, the thing that you yep. specifically mm-hmm. mentioned. Yes, I actually have a brilliant way of teaching people how to do. This. <laughs> Once again, it's back to the old Aristotelian dramatic structure, which we all learned in high school, which is, you know, the Freitag's Pyramid that starts with an inciting incident. Something happened. uh, So a memoirist will take a pivotal moment and start the book with that, but don't finish the incident. 
Yeah, you just move that up to the beginning. Then you go back, tell your backstory, then go through your rising action. You know, somewhere in there, you're going to get back to that incident. And you'll complete it. But there is a there's just a really specific structure that I teach people, mm. you know, structure that same kind of dramatic tension. I actually teach memoir and novel together because the structure of both is so similar. Mm. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And yeah. Treat memoir as if it's all fiction. We could talk about that for a long time, but I'm going to – we're kind of moving to, towards the end now, so I've got to j just one more question to sure. ask you before before I ask you just to kind of tell us a little bit about the kind of things that you do now. So <laughs> the other thing that I just wanted to ask you about was being wise about choosing the right publishing path. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd wondered if you had just some things to share about how a writer should choose the public. I mean, especially when there are so many options open to us now yeah. as writers. Right. How do, right. how do we, how do we be smart about this? <laughs> so um, I would say most of the people who come to me think that the commercial or mainstream option is the only one that's really legitimate. It's just so not the case. So, um, the, you know, the truth of the matter is that, there is nothing that is changing or has changed in the past more than the world of publishing. You mm. know, from the time that the the printing press took over from the monks, uh, publishing has always been in flux. You know, yeah. and we tend to think that there is this kind of golden age where you know Maxwell Perkins edited the heck out of you know Hemingway's stuff and made it great and so on. But you know, that lasted for about two seconds in the history <laughs> of publishing. It's always, always been in flux. It's, you know, responding to the marketplace, to technology. So to say that things are different in publishing is just to, you know, say a well, axiom. Um, so I think people need to really not take it for granted that that is the right path or the, even the mm. desirable path. It's a very different kind of world. It's a world that <laughs> is very narrow. In the United States, there are only five publishing houses you know, mainstream publishing houses anymore. They're very, very looking for very specific things. And sometimes people feel like, well, you know, I couldn't get it published commercially. So that means it's bad. It's not the case at all. It just didn't happen to fit their marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would definitely, you know, suggest that People get really good information. There are a lot of people um, who have really good information about this. Here in America, Jane Friedman is, you know, fantastic on this subject. Um, Joanna Penn is great. Mm, yes. Um, you know, there are people who are really, really, really helpful about demystifying that process. Um, it's something I do with people all the time. Um, so there's there are only particular books that are really suited to that, uh, not because they're better than others, but just because that's the marketplace that works well. Mm. The, in the world of self-publishing, I would say that where things get tricky is that um, because you can publish anything, people are publishing anything, and they yeah. aren't good. <laughs> You know, so it's like, well, it still has to be really good for anybody other than your mother to read it, right? <laughs> you know, you could get that first circle of readers from something um, that wasn't really polished. But are you going to get those readers to tell somebody else who's going to tell somebody else yeah. to read yeah. it? Uh, and yeah. that's the only way that books that is the way that books go viral people think oh it must be book bub it must be you know facebook ads nope it's good old-fashioned this person read it and said hey you really should read this yeah 
that's really the way that works. So it really has to be good. Um, so that those are, you know, the two things I think people have really mistaken ideas about both commercial publishing and self-publishing. And then a lot of people are really not familiar with the whole world of small and independent presses, which can be a very rich world mm. um, and mm. well worth looking into um, for many people who have a really good idea, um, maybe a really specialized idea. Um, you know, they're, they're just thousands of really good small presses. Mm. So, so I, as writers, we should we should do our home. We should think carefully about what we're producing and do, we do our homework and do some research. Absolutely, think about yeah, what's and out there. get educated. Get educated. Yeah, yeah. So, Ginger, we're coming to the end of our, our conversation now. I wonder if if you could just spend a couple of minutes telling us about what you do then, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly about how you can help writers. You've alluded to this a little bit during the conversation, okay. but perhaps we can get a bit more specific about that now. Yeah, so I taught in universities for I won't say how many years, um, <laughs> for many, many, many years. Taught creative writing, uh, and uh, about five years ago, I um, decided just to go on my own, uh, mm-hmm. teaching people in small groups and one-on-one how to write really great books. So I actually I have a program called the Tell Your Story program that has different kind of levels of engagement. There's an introductory version of it. I think I must be stuck in the academic mold because I kind of, there's a, you know, 101 version <laughs> uh, and there's a, you know, you can major in telling your story where you're going deeper um, or you can do a whole academy where you're really going, you know, the, the full distance mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. You know, thinking about a book all the way through publishing and marketing it. Um, so, you know, depending on people's level of engagement, you know, um, where, what they want to do. Uh, and their, you know, capacity for investment. Uh, mm, there's sure. a great range of options there. Um, so really, you know, I I am a developmental editor. Um, I can, you know, read a book and tell you. I I had actually, for whatever reasons, probably because I read every book that's ever been written. I can. <laughs> I can feel what a book wants to be. Now, once again, I know that sounds really woo-woo, but I've been doing this for Mm, a really long mm. time and really help people get it to that place. So that's just something I love doing is really helping people reveal that. Yeah. um, People want to find out more. Is there, is there, have you got a website? How do people kind of connect with your stuff? Just go to ginger Moran, G I N G E R M O R A N.com. Cool. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I have a lot of stuff published around, you know, I've written essays and yeah. um, talked to people and so on. So yeah, you can, you can see, and I have a mailing list um, and it just go to my website and you'll see how to sign up for my sure. mailing list. Okay. Just as a sort of final comment, if there was like one or most at most two bits of advice that you would give to aspiring writers, what would they, what would that be? So I would say uh, just write. I know that sounds silly, mm-hmm. but don't worry about it. Don't don't overthink it. Just give yourself 15 to 30 minutes a day and write a page or two every day. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Don't worry about what it is, you know, what it's doing. Just do that and see what happens. If it's going in a particular direction by the end of a year, you'll have a book. 
Just let yourself do it. Cool. So that's at one end of it. And the other end is learn the craft. It's deeply satisfying um, to, you know, to learn it, to shape it and to, you know, come on in with the rest of us. The water's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jump in. Enjoy it. Jump in. Absolutely. (laughs) Jump in. Jump in and enjoy it. And, And be, you know, be in community. Being with other writers, especially writers who want to get better and aren't uh, spending too much time with the um, woe is me, which we can do that very articulately, um, (laughs) but who really want to just get better and better and keep on doing it and to, you know, steer around the limiting beliefs uh, Mm. and the discouragement, Mm. uh, then uh, it's good to be in that kind of community. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. I was just thinking tender souls that we are. Um, yes. but, but we can, we can help each other and we can be in community. We and, absolutely and, can. Yeah. Yep. We can really inspire each other. Okay. Well, Ginger, it's been great to talk to you. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. You had great questions. I really appreciate it. And, and I love that we agreed on so much. It was pretty. I know. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> um yeah so that's been fantastic and thank you for your time this evening your afternoon this evening thank you so much for the interview thank you for listening to the creative writers tool belt podcast if you want to find out more about the podcast or me just go to my website it's andrewjchamberlain.com